All things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to his purpose. What a promise that is. This week I read of um, an episode from the life of the great hymn writer, Francis Havergale, and many of her hymns are in our hymnal. And near the end of her life, she asked a friend to read a passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 42, verse 6, which reads, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand and will keep you. Francis said, did you hear that? We are called, we are held, and we are kept. And then she added in confidence, I believe I can go home on that. And she did. So the whole purpose, one of the great glorious purposes of the gathering of the church is to prepare God's people for their death. But that is the last thing we ever want to talk about, isn't it? Um, We have become masters in modernity to the superficial. And nowhere is that more glaringly obvious than when the subject of death comes up. Uh, People frequently have a desire to talk about something else or leave the conversation altogether. I recently heard a podcast in which this observation was made, and that is the absence or the loss of church graveyards. Now, I'm not advocating we turn that property to the north (laughs) into a graveyard. I'm just saying that used to be a reality with churches, and um, this can't help but change the way you think about coming into the building. It communicated that the church was indeed a community of faith and that members graduate to the presence of the Lord. Carl Sandburg, in his book, The Prairie Years, and Sandburg was a noted historian and biographer, biographer. He tells of the hardships endured by the early pioneers in Illinois uh, who were contemporaries of Abraham Lincoln. Life uh, was hard and death was common. Nancy Hanks was Lincoln's mother and um, she lost one child and later died herself. It was said that a fourth of all babies died within their first year in the mid-1800s. Sandberg said that the, the one bright spot in their otherwise bleak lives came when they gathered together in the crude log churches each Lord's Day to worship. They sang and prayed, and usually a circuit writer preacher would come in and preach God's word to them. As they worshiped, they could look out the windows of their little churches and see freshly dug graves of loved ones who had died, and they would sing, in the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. On the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. Mike Cosper, in his podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, gave some interesting insights into the struggles of the church um, and how we've lost uh, perspective in preparing God's people for pain and certainly for death. He said, everything we do as a church runs in the opposite direction from that. All in the direction of triumphalism. If we would get our life together, then we will have success and be healthy and blessed and have a high-paying job and spend our latter years floating around doing whatever we want. Let's make our temporal lives wonderful with a happy marriage and a well-paying job, and of course, we'll throw church in there too, because we know we need to go. 
Yes, there are promises that God gives that if we obey him, he will bring blessing to our life. Um, I'm reminded of the promises given in the book of Deuteronomy where the Lord says, if you obey me, then I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. So you have these blessings and cursings that are based upon obedience to God's word. And we find other uh, promises. In Psalm 1, where it says, if you, blessed is the man who delights in God's word. He meditates on it day and night, and then he will make his way prosperous, and then he will have success. And we love verses like that, and we should gravitate towards them, that God calls us to obedience, and we know the blessings that come from his hand. Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, whoever hears these words of mine will be like the wise man who builds his house on the rock compared to the fool who builds it on the sand. So I'm not wanting to introduce a downer on the front end of this great promise, but I think it does help us think through the trials and the pressures and the, the hardships of this world. And so Romans 8.28 is a soft pillow for our head. Romans 8.28 is a promise for us, church, to understand in context and is filled with the sustaining promises of God in a groaning world. We have been given the hope of future resurrection. We found that in Romans 8. We find in earlier verses, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together until now. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who were the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. Some of you are groaning here this morning. You've got burdens in your life, burdens in your family, troubles on your mind. It's a groaning world, but we're not without hope. We have a future resurrection hope. That's all good and well, preacher, but I've got bills that are due tomorrow. I've got pressures. I've got meetings tomorrow. I'm thankful for this resurrection hope, but I, I need to, to know that God's working now, and, and, and we can from this passage. The future resurrection hope serves as, as a remedy for, for present despair. We have a resurrection hope. But not only that, the Spirit of God dwells within us. He intercedes on our behalf. God praying to God on your, your behalf, believer. And so we should be filled with great hope. We have a resurrection hope, meaning that we have the, the hope of a better home, a better body, a better understanding. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. We have the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, which means that he's working in us now. Working in us now. The Spirit of God working in us. And here we come. Our text this morning gives another word of hope. Future resurrection, indwelling Holy Spirit to intercede for us. And here's another one. That he's working all things together for good. For those who love the Lord for those who are called according to his purpose. So let's break this down. Perhaps more than any other promise in God's word, these words have helped God's people through trials and seemingly random, meaningless, heartbreaking, disappointing, and evil experiences in their life. It's not a cruel joke. It's a promise you can take to the bank 
So the ESV reads, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's break down that verse in this way this morning. First, we have certainty in an uncertain world. We have certainty in an uncertain world. Notice how he begins this verse, and we know. There you have it. We can go home on that. We know. And we know. Before we depart, let's talk a little further about it. Uh, There are some differences in the translations. The New American Standard renders it, God causes all things to work together for good. The NIV renders it, in all things God works for the good. The King James mirrors the ESV, all things is the subject, all things work together for good. And so the Greek allows for each of these translations. When we read all things work together for good, it does not mean that, it does not mean that they work that way on their own. And we'll hear that. People will say that just in the course of conversation with no context to Romans 8. All things work together for good. They'll say that. And that's not what this says. It doesn't say that all things work together for good. The things that are described here in Romans 8 to 8 are not given over to fate. That's not even a biblical concept. It's not given over to luck. I hope you'll excise that from your vocabulary. There's no such thing as luck. In fact, Proverbs says that the rolling of the dice, the Lord's in charge of that. So how in detail is the God you serve and know with regard to the details of life? He's intimately involved in it all. God is working these things together for good. Paul is not saying all things are good. They're not. He's not saying all things are turned by God for good. Or what he is saying is that they're turned by God for good. And we know there's certainty in an uncertain world. I don't know what the end of the day will bring for us, for you as a person, individual, for me as an individual, for us as a church. But we know this, that nothing enters our lives that doesn't pass through the hands of our our, our God. Notice that Paul doesn't say we feel. <laughs> we live in a feely age. And we feel. Or it doesn't say even that we understand. We don't understand. There's so many things we don't understand. There's so many perplexing problems that we don't, we don't know in the present. This is speaking of a deep inner conviction. Our circumstances may lead us to think otherwise. Every Christian, not just Paul, faces discouragements, faces defeats, and in the face of such experiences, our response should be, and we know. I don't understand, Lord, what you're doing, but I know that all things work together for good in my life because of Jesus Christ. Do you have great certainty? Do you have certainty in your life? As a believer, can we have certainty? Let me, let me kind of break this down with, by what I think Paul is saying, and we know. Uh, turn with me to John 6.47. In John 6.47, this is a, a major part of Jesus' public ministry. It's a tremendous chapter. Chapter. 
Look at verse 47. I love the simplicity of this. I want to ha- look at two cross-references here, and then we'll go to 1 John in just a moment, 1 John 5. But in John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Has eternal life. Let me just, uh, as an evangelistic track, holding this out to you. Do you, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sins and are you believing, resting, and trusting in Him? Jesus says, if that's the case, you're trusting in Him, His death on the cross, His resurrection for you, His promises to you. If you believe in Him, you have what? Eternal life. When you die, when you go to the cemetery, However, your life will end in this world? No, 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 now. This is a present possession. To have eternal life is a present possession now that never ends. Death is just a transition, a painful one, but a transition into the presence of God. Turn with me to 1 John 5, as we're talking about knowing. 1 John 5. I love the simplicity of the way John writes, not only in the Gospels, but in the epistles that bear his name. 1 John 5, verse 12. Whoever has the Son has what? Life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Is that not black and white? You have the Son, you have life. You don't have the Son, you don't have life. What do you mean I don't have life? I'm breathing now, my mind's working, my heart's pumping. You don't have eternal life. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may what? Know. There is a biblical assurance that is here for the receiving. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ the Lord, that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know that, friends? I pray you do. I preach that you would know that. That there is a place, there's an anchor for your soul found in in Christ. Some years ago, I read a book by D.A. Carson called um, Becoming Conversant with the Emerging Church, which was a development in the evangelical world about 15 years ago. And it, it was subtitle was Understanding a Movement and Its Implications. And part of the cancer of the emergent church was you can't really know. You can't really be certain about anything. How it feels to you, well, you know, that's how it feels. That's your truth. Ultimately, that's how it works out. But Carson spent an, an entire chapter that really made an indelible impression in my mind with biblical references confronting those who say you can't really know the truth. You can't really possess real knowledge. You can't make objective truth claims presented in the scripture. And he goes verse by verse by verse. I mean, hundreds of references on you, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free and on knowing with certainty. I think I referenced Phil Johnson's comment recently. He said, postmodern thinking, uncertainty is humility. 
To be uncertain, well, that means you're humble. To be dogmatic or settled in conviction, that's arrogant. You can't really know. Diversity is always honorable. Propositional truth claims are never to be taken seriously. As Christians, we ought to recognize instantly that is not humility, that's unbelief. And in Romans 8:28, and we know, we know that if the bottom falls out in my life, I'm not without hope where I don't understand, and I may not understand as long as I live in this world, but I know, I know he's in charge. And I know he's bringing all things together for good for those who, know, who love the Lord. Notice with me secondly, God is working in all things for good. All things work together for good. There's no limits. There's nothing qualifying it. All things work together. God makes it work together. The greatest promise we can have in this life is that God is working all things together for good for those who love the Lord. And I think it's important that we identify this promise has some boundaries. Who's this promise for? For, thank you, my dear wife, speaking from... Row two, that's right, for believers only, for believers only, once again, we come to the clear teaching of the scripture. How many ways are there? Multiple ways? Many ways? There's only two ways. There's God's way. And there's a way that perishes all the way through the Bible. That's true. It's for believers only. Those who love the Lord. Those who are called according to his purpose. This is a golden promise, but it's not for everyone. If you're without Jesus Christ today, I pray that this promise would be yours. That you would come to Christ and it would be true of you. And true for you. This verse is not saying that God will turn all things for good for everyone. The conditions, the boundaries are one is that you love God and that you're called according to his purpose. If you don't love God, this promise is not for you. If I'm not called according to his purpose, this promise is for those who are. To be optimistic apart from God at the center of your life is, is misplaced. So let's just be honest. That if I'm, I'm not in the saving grace of God through Jesus Christ, this verse is not a comfort to me. This, this verse is an indictment of me. And I have every reason to be anxious. And I have every reason to be pessimistic because it's not working together for ultimate good. Because ultimately the details of your life is not going to work out for good but for judgment. Look back at Romans 2 verse 5. It says in Romans 2 5, Paul speaking straightforwardly, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, that's someone who doesn't love the Lord. 
That's someone outside the, the bounds of the promise of Romans 8 to 8. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, that means you, you, you don't repent. You don't turn from your sins. You're going to do it your way. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God, God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Talk about a sobering statement. So no, if I don't love God, I have no reason to believe that all things are working together for good in my life. Oh yeah, I may get a windfall, I may be successful, but even that success may turn out to be a curse if it drives you farther and farther away from God. Listen, listen to the sobering words of one commentator. In other words, the experiences this person walks through each day don't turn for good, they turn for wrath. The pleasant things that he does not thank God for or make me a means of worship will condemn him someday. The painful things that he walks through without trusting God's help will store up wrath for the last day. He may look poor or he may look prosperous in this world, but if he does not love God and is not called according to his purpose, all his experiences are not leading to good, but to eternal misery. Wow, you sure did flip a golden promise into a sober word of warning, didn't you? You know, I think of another promise that we... we we, we, we use rightfully, we should stand on the promises, but how quickly people say, you know, God, God says, don't be anxious for nothing. If you're without Jesus Christ, you need to be beyond anxious. You need to be anxious. You need someone to tell you, someone in this world to tell you, you're not right with God. Therefore, it's not right. And it's not working out for good. I don't care how successful you are as the wor world counts success. Let's move on to something else. What is meant by good? That's an interesting word. Agathon is the Greek word. It, it means good in the purest sense. It means morally good. That means God is moving it in that direction. He's in charge of that. Nothing can happen in my life as a believer that ultimately that doesn't ultimately work out to an eternal weight of glory and good. Um, so sometimes people think all things work together for good. That means I'll be healthy, right? That's good. I'll be successful, right? I'll have plenty of money. I'll be happy as the world's concepts dictate. Since the path of following Jesus is marked by suffering, it's marked by failure and setbacks, sometimes scorn, if we want to be true to the Lord, all people will not appreciate that. It'll, it'll bring profound disappointments. What does good mean if it doesn't mean wealth, health, admiration, and success? We find the answer in verse 29. What does good mean? Well, he says here, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, that we are being conformed. What is good? Anything that's going to conform me to the image of Jesus Christ, that's good. How many could give a testimony this morning that from failures and shortcomings in your life, 
you learn more about trusting God than in the good times. When you had such deep disappointments and sorrows, and God brought those in in His loving discipline in your life, and you look back in retrospection, you wouldn't trade it for anything because you saw the Lord in ways that Job saw. We hear about him, but until we walk through the the suffering and the difficulty, so all these things are working together for good that really conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. If you do not have in your thinking that what it means to be a Christian is to be conformed into the image of Christ, you'll, you'll think you're being ripped off when life is hard. You'll begin to believe things like, well, if anybody has a right to be bitter, I do. And stupid things like that. But if we see that, no, this is about me learning and walking as Christ wants me to walk, I learn things that could never be experienced otherwise. So I think the the great example of this working all things together for good is the, the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. You know the verse I'm thinking about already. Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph said to his brothers, you remember they sold him into slavery. And they were debating and arguing, don't kill him. Let's just say, hey, there's, some, there's some traitors. Let's sell him. Let's just send him off. They had put him in a pit. They had taken the robe from him the robe of many colors that his father had given to him. And I imagine when his brothers threw him into the pit and retrieved him from the pit to sell him into slavery, some of them had a sly grin. Your day's come. You're out of here. And they sold their brother into slavery. And so we follow the narrative of Genesis. God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. And at the end of it all, his brothers end up coming back to him. And at that time, he was second in charge of the nation of Egypt. He was in charge of the food. He's somebody you'd want to know when there's a famine. And so here are those pathetic brothers standing before their brother that they don't recognize. And Joseph reveals himself. And this is what he says, because when Jacob, their father, died, the brothers were sweating bullets. He's going to kill us now. Dad's gone. We're dead. But that's not what Joseph said to his brothers. As for you, you meant it for evil. Yes, you did. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Oh, may God help us to see the trials of our life like that. Another question. How am I to understand God's good use of bad things? Some of you um, have experienced horrendous things. And that falls in the all things. How, does, how am I to understand God's use of bad things. Thomas Watson calls this verse a divine cordial. 
which means a comfort, God's comfort. And this isn't a pat on the back, light dose of encouragement. This is really going a deep dive into the attributes of God and the promises and mercies of God and the grace of God's spirit and and the intercession of Christ and all these things. How are we to understand how God uses bad things? Well, we're not saying that all things are good. Not a spiritual positive thinking regiment. That's not what we're talking about. Let's be clear that sin is not good. Evil is not good. The devil is not good. Neither does it say that God causes all things. God is not the author of sin, not the author nor the participant of evil. God harmonizes all things for the good of believers, for those who are called according to his purpose. God takes all things hard, difficult, and painful with a purpose. I appreciated Stephen Lawson's comment here uh, on this convergence of God's providence and bringing good and bad and uh, the experiences of life into, into the life of the believer. God causes some things. God allows other things. God controls all things. All things. Changes in weather, changes in traffic, brief conversations, meetings that seem to be fortuitous, difficult trials, the loss of a job, a burned out relationship that as much as you wanted to survive, it it hasn't, lost health, cancer, and on and on it goes. God causes even difficult things to work together for your good and for mine. Look at how the chapter ends. Verse 35, he says, who can separate us from the love of God? or love of Christ, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, none of those things. He says in verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us, which causes us to look to the future. Now, let me close with this thought. Embracing what it means to be called according to his purpose, because that's another boundary. Those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Verse 29 is the explanation of that. What does that mean? It says, whom he foreknew, he predestined. We're going to give an entire month to verses 29 and 30. I'm not going to blow by that. We're going to give a month, four Sundays, to verses 29 and 30. But this is the answer, called according to his purpose, that we would be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So let me, let me close with just a few diagnostic questions, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Do you, do you love God? That is the greatest commandment, Jesus said. Do you love him? It can't be on your terms. It's not a warm feeling you might have about spiritual things. No, do you, do you, do you love the God of the Bible? How do I do that? Well, it's through the work of Christ that we come to see his grace and love for us. Do you love God? Do you trust God with the details of your life? Maybe you're dealing with things, uh, disappointments in, in your life, past pains in your life, and you've never come to a place of forgiveness toward others, and the bitterness is maybe like a sludge on your heart. Maybe today would be the first step towards knowing God's healing by his grace. 
There, there have been some wonderful moments in my Christian life where God has reached down into my heart and picked something up and he held it up to me, as I imagine it, he, holding it up to me, in essence saying, do you see this? I want to heal you from that. I want to bring you past that as a part of conforming you into the image of my son. Maybe by God's grace today, he would reach into your heart and say to you, do you see this? I need for you to trust me with this because I'm working an eternal weight of glory in your life. Do you see God's hand working in your life for your good? If you're always feeling like you're being ripped off by God, you're not going to see the good things he's doing in your life. And really at the heart of that is you're just not thankful without losing any compassion. You, you're just not thankful. If, you're, if you feel like you're always being ripped off by God, things are never the way you want them to be, really at the root of it is you're just pretty ungrateful. And you need to pray that God would give you eyes to see. Do you thank God for how he has worked? How he's worked? How he's working right now? John Piper said, The rugged hope of the believer is that every one of our agonies become an instrument of God's mercy to do us good. And we don't have to look far to see how that makes perfect sense. Because all we need to do is look at the cross. And the worst demonstration of hatred and blasphemy this world has ever known was seen at the cross. And at that same mount, God was doing his greatest work that redemption and forgiveness would flow to your life and mine. It's why we make much of the cross. That God is a God who has suffered in this world and he has overcome it through his life, death, and resurrection. Would you bow with me in prayer? I would invite the deacons to come forward at this time for our Lord's Supper. Father, we pray in these moments as we take the bread and the cup that we would remember what you've done for us and that this would be a joyful celebration of your goodness to this church. Thank you for inviting us to come that as often as we eat and drink, we would do this in remembrance of you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated, men.